you'd open your Bibles to uh, John chapter 13, we'll be reading the first 17 verses, and then we're going to, um, to, uh, to turn to the explanation of God's Word. What a, what a blessing to be able to hear. I, I, heard, I heard the first part of what, um, what Andy Hostetler shared this morning about his uh, upcoming year-long trip to Zambia. It's probably not entire, children are dismissed to praise factor, I didn't say that, but you guys are, you know the score, you know what to do. Um, but uh, uh, coincidentally, or, or by arrangement, Andy is headed to Zambia for a year, and it was encouraging to hear him share about that this morning in Sunday school. Just to, to let you know, uh, next week we've got a, an opportunity to, to, to begin a new study, and then we're going to be having Zambia Sunday. The students are going are to be here, and the, the team that was overseas is going to share a little bit about their experience. Um, but, but, but the following weeks after that, we're going to be taking a, a period of time to talk about um, Christians and technology. You might think, oh, that means Facebook. Eh, come out and hear more. Okay, um, I believe we're living in a unique time. It's, it's funny, I often tell people that I never sent a single text message before I lived in Salisbury. And now when I check usage, now you can check usage on every single phone, I, I, wound, up, I wound up sending thousands of them a month because this is the way that people communicate. That doesn't even count Facebook messages and other kinds of, of emails and things like that. Um, technology is shaping and changing us, and, uh, and we need to be wise and aware so that we can use what God has given, because God has given us things. He's given us uh, minds to create technology, and all things are to be used to glorify God. And so how do we glorify God in our use of, of, of technology? So we're going to start that next week in Sunday school, and then, and then we'll have uh, Zambia Sunday, and then we'll continue it. If you don't normally come out to Sunday school and you're like, man, you know, someday I want to go, this is the time. It's going to be good. If you're a youth group parent, we're going to be teaching this to the youth in the fall. And when your kid comes home and says, Pastor Keith says cell phones are evil, you will be able to say, no, 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 I was in Sunday school and I heard what he said. And I will say something like that, but not that. Okay? There you go. Um, so John chapter 13, starting in verse 1, uh, the scripture says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper... When the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, Not all of you are clean. 
When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If then your Lord, I, if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity to read your word and to hear it. We're not guaranteed anything, and so as the book of James says, we ought to say, if the Lord wills, and so we thank you that we've had an opportunity to hear your word, and we pray that we wouldn't be those who just hear the word read and say, that's nice, but instead that we say, that is the word of the Lord. And we, because we are creatures created in the image of God, created by a good God, a God who gives grace and life, we ought to conform our lives into the pattern of your word. And so we pray that you would give us grace to humble ourselves. Grace to lay hold of truth. Grace to be obedient. Grace to lower our guard and to hear your word and perhaps to hear something as you speak to us that we do not like. And to say that's good because the Lord is speaking to me, challenging me, changing me and shaping me. As we think about the state of the church, I pray that, that you would help us, Lord, to see what is of greatest importance and that you would help us to make that truly of greatest importance in our lives. We pray that you would humble us, Lord, in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, as uh, year nine begins, you know, you've got a kind of an opportunity to say, hey, what, what, do, I, what do I say that's important on this day? Uh, as, I, as we consider the state of the church, uh, what, what is of first importance? And, and so I, I, I think that, um, that the heart of, of what we were getting at when we were working through the Gospel of John many years ago here uh, is, is where I just want to dwell. It would be very easy to say we need to get about these tasks or to do this or fix this or fix that. It would be very easy to just kind of give a laundry list of things. Um, but if we rearrange external behavior and don't experience heart change, if the heart is not right, then nothing will be right, right? There are, there are, there are certain things we can move to the next passage in Genesis um, or to find a, a passage in, in one of Paul's letters and say, this is a good application for today. Um, but there are matters of great importance in the Bible. Jesus was asked the question, which is the greatest commandment? And he said, there are two. You know, all scripture is inspired by God, but there are some which are more important and weighty and, and guide all the others. And I think when it comes to the church and the way that the church ought to live together and to pursue its mission and to handle conflict and to deal with cultural change and stress, this is a passage that just speaks so wonderfully to the situation that most churches find themselves in as they experience different changes, different struggles. And so we're going to talk about it. 
The disciples finished their preparations for the Passover and left to fetch Jesus and the others and to guide them back into Jerusalem, clomping down the dirt road as they went. On their way walking back into the city with the rest of the group, they broke out into their familiar argument concerning which among them would be greatest in the kingdom. The day was warm. The road was dusty and it was sprinkled with animal dung and occasionally muddy patches. It, it must have been maddening. Imagine what it would be like for Jesus to have been with these men for three years and to still have to tend with their childish, immature attitudes, their constant bickering, their bragging, their lack of understanding of the deep truths which he was teaching, which they had heard over and over again as he taught the crowds. They'd had this argument many times before, but that didn't stop them from having it again. They found the place where they were going to eat the Passover and perhaps struggled to see who would be the first who walked through the door, and then they raced up the stairs, bounded into the upper room, rushed past the jar of water and the basin, and the towel by the door, reclined at table, waiting for Jesus to pray so that the official business would be taken care of and they could then compete for the the best morsels on the table as they ate. Jesus prayed. They began to eat. And then something very strange happened. Jesus began to wash their feet. This was completely inappropriate for someone of his stature. What in the world was he thinking? As we, as we investigate this passage and think about this, we, we're, we're treated to an account of Jesus' knowledge, what exactly he was thinking. The scripture says, before the feast of the Passover, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. That might sound a little sci-fi, right? You know, that his hour has come to depart out of this world, like the the mothership is going to come, and he's going to speak into his communicator and say, one to beam up, right? And And then vanish. You know, or maybe to think more biblically speaking, the, the chariot may come down and, and, and arrive to get him and he'll be taken up into heaven or translated, maybe like Enoch or Elijah. Um, what does it mean that his hour was coming to depart out of the world? Uh, in, in the Gospel of John, Jesus will say that his hour has not yet come and he's not speaking uh, about um, you know, a, a chronological 60-minute hour, but he's speaking about a time that would come. He says to, to Mary when she says they've run out of wine, this is his mom, he says, woman, you know, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. He's speaking about the time when he would be glorified, that, that, that great moment of his life that all of his life would build up to when he would be glorified. And we think that, that glory or, or, or glorification means that he's, he's going to be shiny and brilliant and everything's going to be great. But when John uses the word glory, he's speaking about the particular way in which Jesus would leave the world. Jesus doesn't leave the world on a, on a UFO or on a chariot. He, he leaves through the cross. 
The hour that was coming for him to depart out of the world to the Father was through the cross, through pain and suffering. So this is in his mind. He knew that his hour had come. Having loved his own, these these men who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. This is what's in Jesus' mind as he begins to wash their feet. What, what things are in his mind? I think there are, there are five thoughts or five observations that we can make. One, we can see that Jesus is not a quitter. Right? He had loved his followers well. He had taught them hard things. He had been compassionate to them. He had, he had rebuked them for their hardness of heart and their lack of understanding. He had explained things over and over and over again. And he had, he had redirected their, their self-centered thoughts time and again. And he had showed them and, and taught them. He loved them well. And even though he was beginning to be anxious about his coming death, no stress or anxiety would keep him from loving them to the fullest extent. He would not become a quitter. Second, his betrayer was known to him. Judas had hatched the plot. It it was in his mind. Judas had determined that he would go, and, and he was putting the pieces of the plan together, and Jesus knew that he was in the room. Third, Jesus had total authority. It said that knowing the Father had given all things into his hands, he would say in Matthew 28, um, in the Great Commission, uh, all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Jesus knows that he has completed his mission well, and he knows that he he will endure to the end, and he knows that the Father is entrusting all authority to him. He also knows of his heavenly origin. He knows that he had come from God. From before time, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was, he was always with Him, always existent, always the eternal, perpetual Son of the Father, the most blessed being in the universe with respect to God the Father. That's God the Son, the royal, wonderful, dignified, divine Son of God. He had a heavenly origin. He also had a royal destiny, and just a short amount of time, he would go back to God. Imagine what what Jesus must have been thinking after 33 years of of living a human existence, of of walking places and being obedient and and working hard and relying on the Holy Spirit and, and praying and not having the same kind of heavenly glorified relationship. He'll pray about this in in John 17. He he knew he was going to go back to God. What must it have been like What would it be like for him to enter into heaven to the praise and the joy of the angels and all the beings and all the saints who had gone before as as the Father, the hush falls over the crowd as the Father says, well done. What must that have been like? To to know that that was coming. This is all what's in, in Jesus' mind. Knowing all these things, how did he act? How would you act? When I ask this question myself, I think... This is kind of like a signed blank check, right? Like you are the greatest human being ever. You're about to receive the greatest title ever, a name that's above every other name. You're you're going to be so incredibly, wonderfully blessed. What do you do? Someone has said that for every 
10 people who can handle the problem of poverty, there's only one who can handle the problem of prosperity. I, I, I search my heart and I think I might not respond well to this kind of ability or opportunity. But Jesus demonstrates his wisdom and his dignity and his class. Given the impending status of being ruler of the world, let's see what he does. His, his knowledge moves him to action. He is, based on what he knows, he does the right thing at that moment, at that time. He acts because he must act for the sake of his disciples. He must love them well to the end. He must show them. He must teach them once more. And so what does he do? The, the scripture says as he, as he sees that the disciples are, are, are working through this argument, knowing that they do not yet possess the knowledge that they, that they need, knowing that they have yet, not yet fully matured, the scripture says he laid aside his outer garments. He took a towel and he tied it around his waist. This is inappropriate for a rabbi like this. This is not befitting of his status or title. The king of the universe does not do this. The, the king of the universe does not put on a janitor's uniform and, and clean people's feet. This is the lowest job for the lowest servant in the entire house. Nobody scrambles for this opportunity. But it says that Jesus willingly clothed himself like this. He poured water into a basin. He began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. When this is over, Jesus will, will teach extensively in John 14 and 15 and 16 and then pray in 17. There's going to be many lessons that roll out this night. But the first lesson, and perhaps we could say the one of, of greatest weight that sets the stage for everything else is this. The example of the Lord Jesus Christ, God incarnate, the greatest man who ever lived is this, radical servanthood. The God who created the universe, the being of greatest dignity and worth, is willing to take up the despised practice of foot washing. Jesus will ask them in Luke 22, he'll say, who is the greater? The one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Now, don't let all your years of hearing the Bible get in the way of the fact that this is a very easy question to answer. When I take my wife out to supper, right, and we go out to a nice restaurant for dinner, and I am paying the bill, who's greater? The guy who's ordering the food or the person who's serving the food? Right? If there's something wrong with my wife's meal, you know what I say? I say, this is not right. You, and I say it much more polite, could you please fix this? But, but I, you know, I'm trying to make sure that there's no uncertain terms with the fact that I am not satisfied and you are going to fix this because I am greater than that person. They serve me. That's why we call them waitstaff or, or help or servants, servers, right? Because the one who's paying the bill the one who's sitting at the table is greater than the one who serves. So Jesus asked the question, who is the greater, the one who reclines at table or the one who serves? Now, he's going to make this point, so don't, don't miss it. He says, is it not the one who reclines at table? Isn't the one who's being served? But, Jesus says, I am among you 
as the one who serves. This is revolutionary in terms of our thinking. The, Jesus takes the organizational chart of the world, right? Kings get served, important people get served, rulers get served, leaders get served, the greatest gets served. And Jesus flips the entire chart on its head and said, I am among you as one who serves. I am your master and your Lord, and I embrace this lowly task. Jesus shows that the true mark of greatness is humility, and he sets a vivid example among them about how it should be. And this is consistent with all of what God has done throughout the scriptures up to this point. No human being deserves to be served by God. And yet over and over again throughout the scriptures, we see God serving people by humbling himself, forgiving, blessing, showing grace and kindness and making promises and being faithful to them over and over, God serves people. And apart from his service, they will not survive the problem of their sin. We'll get into that in just a second. Listen to what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. This is the the fruit that the Holy Spirit is trying to produce in us, and we resist it with our sin, and the Spirit makes war with our flesh, right? The mind of Christ growing within us, this is our legacy. Jesus taught this the night before he went to the cross. He lived this kind of life. The, The mind that's ours in Christ Jesus, here's what it is. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that's above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Though he was in the form of God, that was, that was his, his natural, initial form, the form of God. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Do you know how crazy that is? Right? There was a time a number of years ago, this is a number of years ago, when I, I went to the bank and I, I, I brought a deposit slip or a withdrawal slip for $2,500. I needed $2,500 in cash because we had decided we were going to give it and help somebody with something. You know what? That money was something to be grasped. I am by nature a bit of an anxious person and so I do a lot of this, right? The money goes in the pocket, right? And I do this. Still there? Still there? Still there? Still there? Still there? Why? Because Losing that money is bad, right? You know, it's not like a a, a credit card that, you know, I can cancel. You can't cancel money. If you lose it, it's gone. It is something to be held on to because it is infinitely worthy or it's worth whatever number is printed on it. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God something to be grasped. What? If you put me in that position, you say, here, we're just going to give you divine powers for a day. And then you'll give them back. Sure. Let me have them. Am I giving them up? No. Never, ever again. Are you out of your mind? 
But Jesus, knowing that humanity needs to be served, does not act out of the character of God. He doesn't do something which is inconsistent with God's character. He does what is completely and utterly consistent with the character of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And he makes himself nothing. He takes the form of a servant. He's born in the likeness of men. And he humbles himself by becoming obedient. Obedient to teach. Obedient to preach. Obedient to rebuke. Obedient to wash the feet of bickering, childish disciples. But obedient to take the whole of the sins of all humanity on himself. So that some might be saved. He became obedient to the point of death. Even death on a cross. Make no mistake why Jesus has the greatest name, the most highly exalted name, because he took the greatest servant burden upon himself. Jesus is teaching that radical servanthood ought to exist among the people of God because it was at the center of the mind of the master from the very beginning. Well, Peter sees this happening and he is aghast. This is a crisis. This is a tragedy. Jesus comes to Simon Peter and Peter said, Lord, you are washing my feet. You're going to wash my feet. You're the master. I'm the servant. You're going to wash my feet. That's what's going on here. Jesus is uh, going to help him think his way through this because he knows Peter tends to overreact. Jesus says, what I'm doing, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you will never wash my feet. And I attempted to read the way this is written in Greek in the early service and it didn't go well, so I'm just going to give you the, the, the flat-out wooden bad English translation of what's there, which they don't put in the Bible because it wouldn't sound like good English grammar, okay? But don't lose your confidence in your Bible. I'm, I'm just going to tell you, because what it means is Jesus, Peter says to Jesus, you will never wash my feet, okay? But here's the way he says it. Never, ever, no, not ever, will you wash my feet in this age. Never will you wash my feet, forever. This is like the most emphatic way that you can say this in Greek. This is not happening. Can you see him like grabbing the bowl, you know, and like, you know, being like, no. And Jesus is like, cut it out. Stop it. Jesus answers him. You know, you can see the force of Jesus' authority here, right? You know, the, maybe the, the strength of his personality. He says, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. You are out of the club, Right? You know, and Peter's like, uh, what am I going to do? I, I'm, I'm supposed to get a throne. You know, I'm going I'm to be, be the greatest. You know, I don't want to lose my share. So then Peter now flips to the exact opposite end of the spectrum. You know, a minute ago it was don't wash my feet. And now he's like, Lord, not only my feet only, but also my hands and my head. All these other guys, you know, they just, they want their, they, they receive foot washing. But wash the whole of me. And then I'll have, what, a double share? Jesus is like, you be quiet. <laughs> Jesus said to him, the one who's bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. What's the meaning of the foot washing? I think there are several implications for us. Here's the first. I think the foot washing symbolizes the cleansing, atoning death of Jesus. That's why there's not going to be some weird moment where I like break out nine bowls and say, wash each other's feet. Right? Have you ever, you know, that, that happens sometimes in churches where pastors are like, and now I'm going to wash your feet. And everybody's like, that's too much, too, too strange. I think that misses the point. The point is the washing symbolizes his cleansing, atoning death. Listen to this. 
hard, hard words for our culture. You might, you might feel the description of your own sinfulness in these verses. 1 Corinthians 6, 9, Paul says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Oh, the door into the kingdom of God has slammed on so many with the reading of that verse. But Paul says this, here's the bright light and the hope. And such were some of you. Wait, wait, how? Okay, I thought we, we couldn't inherit the kingdom of God. But now you're saying some of us used to be like that, right? Here's the result. Here's the, or here's the cause. You were washed, Paul says. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Jesus must wash. We must be served. We must be cleansed and purified or we have no standing in the kingdom of God. This is such a good and important antidote to nice religion, the nice religion that lives in the world. Being religious helps no one. Giving money in the offering plate doesn't change our status or standing before God. Serving for 40 years in a church, playing in a worship band, preaching sermons, serving food to the poor. None of these things change our status before God. They are good things to do because they are good. But they do not earn us not a single point. They do not cancel out a single sin. Because we are wretched and evil and sick before a holy God. And we need someone to do for us what we cannot do ourselves, and only God can do it for us. We're sinners from the moment of birth, and nothing can erase our sins, but praise God Almighty. Jesus says, you need to be washed, I will wash you. What does the hymn say? There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. People might say, that sounds disgusting and unsanitary. But when we understand how sick and wicked we are and what we deserve to have our own blood shed, these verses take on life. The, scripture, the, the song says, And sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. Would you be free from the burden of sin? There's power in the blood. If you try to make it on your own, you will fail. That's what Jesus is saying to Peter. Peter's like, you'll never wash my feet. He says, then you're dead. But you can be washed. You can have part in what I'm going to do because what I'm going to do is the only way to be saved. You too, if you're here today and you don't know Christ and your sins are on you, can be washed freely. Confess your sins to him. He knows them. Ask him to wash you. Claim his death on the cross as your own and God will pardon you and you will be clean and called his child. Uh, a modern hymn writer named Brian Wren was moved to write these words. Great God, in Christ you call our name and then receive us as your own. Not through some merit, right, or claim, but by your gracious love alone. We strain to glimpse your mercy seat and find you kneeling at our feet. Then take the towel and break the bread and humble us and call us friends. Suffer and serve till all are fed 
and show how grandly love intends to work till all creation sings, to fill all worlds, to crown all things. What an amazing God who chooses to stoop and to serve and to cleanse and make peace with his enemies. Meaning number two in the foot washing is this. Even though we have been washed, we will need washings. Jesus tells Peter that that the bath is good forever, but the feet will need washing. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash. Because Peter's like, wash me, you know. Like, the one who's bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. Much is made in our culture of the fact that Christians are sinners. And and sometimes we embrace this to to the detriment of our holiness. We're so busy saying Christians are sinners that we're we're forgiving people for sins of which they should repent. You know, it's like, oh, all Christians are sinners. No, 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 no. We ought to, the, the church that's running rightly ought to bring a little bit of crisis into each other's lives, right? And say like, hey man, you just sinned. Well, we're all sinners. Yeah, okay, so repent, you know, acknowledge that and don't stop doing that. Stop it. But so often I think we can, we can, we can then go the opposite end of the spectrum and, and we can say where, where there's sin, that it, that it exposes that there's something deficient about someone's Christianity, right? And somebody might then be, be pushed into the place where they question and say, am I still saved? Did, did the washing not work? Did justification not break the back of sin in my life? And, and is the power of the Holy Spirit not working right? Am I not right with God? Does God hate me? Am I, am I lost? To which Jesus says this, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. It's feet that get dirty as we walk through the world. Our subsequent sins after being justified in Christ will need to be confessed and cleansed, but your justification, the declaration of God when you believe in Christ, when he enlivens you by the power of the Holy Spirit, the declaration that you are legally righteous with the righteousness of Christ is forever. Technically speaking, this is the best theological uh, way to express this I can come up with. That means that God will never ever, never, ever, never, ever send you away if you have put your faith and trust in Christ. I don't know how to get clearer than that. If you believe in the sacrifice of Christ on the cross, you are clean. And yet, sin lives there with you and within you. The reformers used the phrase simul justus et peccatori, which means at the same time justified and sinner. Two existences lived out by one person. Our sins may interrupt and break our fellowship with God, but they will never break our relationship with God. Your relationship depends on what Jesus does for you, and that cannot be broken. But your fellowship with God is lived out on the basis of how you trust and obey. And you will mess that up. But the good news is there is water to cleanse you. And so come to Christ in confession. Get a buddy to confess to, to say, what, where, where, am I, where am I straying? And be washed clean. A third implication of of the foot washing, I think demonstrates the gracious nature of God. Jesus says, and you are clean, but not every one of you. Because he knew who was going to betray him. That's why he said, not all of you are clean. Listen to this. 
Because you might miss this. Because I missed it. I was helped by, by someone to see it. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments, notice he had washed all their feet. When he had washed their feet, Judas is still in the room. He washed the feet of Judas, the one who would betray him. I wonder if in that moment of foot washing, if there was that look, if there was that, that, that exchange of glances where Judas is doing that, does he know? Does he know? Does he know? Does he know? He knows everything. He knows all kinds of stuff. He does, when is he going to say something to me? Does, right? And Jesus just looking at him, that, 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 that silent conversation going back and forth. Jesus says in Matthew 5.44, I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. When he says that, he's not just saying the world would be a nice place if people did that. Jesus was on his knees washing dirt and crud off the feet of this man who would kiss his face and turn him over to wicked men after selling him for 30 pieces of silver. I don't know about you, but I don't have many enemies like that. And if I did, I would probably struggle to treat them with even a quarter, an eighth of the kindness or dignity that Jesus is treating them with here. I'm just being honest about what I think my, my flesh would struggle with. Luke 6.27, I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. What do we learn from the foot washing? God is willing to do what he commands us to do. God himself does what he tells us to do. It's not like God's sitting up in heaven not loving his enemies, requiring us to love our enemies. No, God loves his enemies. And Jesus lives it out right here. So we've, we've seen the, the knowledge and we've seen his action. Now, just so that they don't miss it, Jesus is going to, to teach and to, to teach the implications of his actions so that they, they, don't, they don't fail to remember this. When he'd washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Okay. Logic, implication, parable, application, close. Okay? That's the outline for where we're going to go. So see the logic of Jesus here. He says, you call me teacher and Lord, and that's what I am. I wonder if that's a creative use of I am, if Jesus is saying, I am, making a claim to deity and authority here. You, you call me master and Lord, and that's me. If I, the Lord and teacher, wash feet, then you ought to wash feet too. I've given you an example here of a way that you failed to love, the way that you failed to take initiative, the way that you failed to care, and I showed you that I was willing to do it, that I was willing to take up the basin and the towel and to do the hard work of loving and serving when you failed. And you, being servants of the teacher and Lord, cannot claim exemption from what I am willing to do. So I think one of the meanings of the foot washing is this. Of all things, God's people should be radically humble. And they should love each other and in loving service 
wash each other's feet. Now, I do not mean physically wash each other's feet. That was a task that needed to be accomplished at the time. It was a, a means of service that they all thought they were too good to embrace and to lay hold of. And so he did it for them to show them that the greatest among them would be willing to do the least desirable tasks. Jesus washed their feet to teach them that he was not so concerned about the impure dirt on their feet, but of the proud defilement living in their hearts. In the church, comparison, competition, conflict bring corrosion and breakdown into the community of God, but humility and service in love erases them. Notice the way that Jesus handles the situation. He accepts responsibility for others. He takes initiative. He acts in humility. He's built these relationships, and now within the the context of this, this relationship that he has with them, he lovingly rebukes pride and lovingly teaches them the truth. parable. Uh, This is attributed to a man by the name of James Needham. And he says this, as I sat with my family at a local breakfast establishment, I noticed a finely dressed man at an adjacent table. His Armani suit and stiffly pressed shirt coordinated perfectly with a power tie. His wingtip shoes sparkled from a recent shine. Every hair was in place, including his perfectly groomed mustache. The man sat alone eating a bagel as he prepared for a meeting. As he reviewed the papers before him, he appeared nervous, glancing frequently at his Rolex watch. It was obvious he had an important meeting in front of him. The man stood up, and I watched as he straightened his tie and prepared to leave. Immediately, I noticed a blob of cream cheese attached to his finely groomed mustache. He was about to go into the world dressed in his finest with cream cheese on his face. I thought of the business meeting he was about to attend. Who would tell him? Should I? What if no one did? You and I have cream cheese on our face. We walk around with the dirt of sin on our feet because that's what life does to us. We are fallen and yet redeemed. We are simultaneously justified and sinner. And we know it. We know before, you guys know before I do what my faults and flaws are, right? And what happens if we fail to lovingly, humbly serve each other? The foundational act of the church, the foundational event of the church is the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. He is the cornerstone of the church. And the foundational virtue of Jesus is his humble service. And so let me confess something with humble conviction to you. I am well aware that I am not perfect. I'm a guy who met Jesus, and that encounter has changed my life, and I need your help as brother and sister Christians and your love to help me on the way home. And let me tell you something that I know 
both from biblical conviction and from knowing you. And I know most of you, and I believe I know most of you fairly well. If you are a Christian, then you are a person who met Jesus, that encounter has changed your life, and you need my help and the help of other brothers and sisters in Christ, and my love to help you on the way home. We need each other because we have cream cheese on our face and dirt on our feet. Notice the way Jesus handles the situation, and note how we ought to handle it. He accepts responsibility for others. He takes initiative. He acts in humility. He's built relationships and he uses them not just to preserve peace and and personal prosperity, but he, he takes responsibility and he uses the relationship as a vehicle to lovingly rebuke pride and to lovingly teach the truth. And that is what we ought to do if we are going to be like our master. I believe that God is going to use this church to the degree of which we are willing to honor him in the way that he calls us to live. So let me encourage you to seek out brothers and sisters, to build relationships, not in just what you're you're willing to say. We, We watched whatever sportsing game is on TV. It's good. Do that. But pursue relationships where you are able to say, where is the dirt on my feet? Where is the cream cheese on my face? What are all the nice people around me not willing to tell me? And then they'll tell you what everyone else but you already know, and you ought to say thank you. And then lovingly walk together as you grow. Lesson number five. Knowing is not the same as doing. Knowing is easy, but doing is hard. Jesus says, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. To know is not a virtue. To do is to be blessed and is virtuous. So what happened? Did they learn the lesson? I believe they did. Peter, writing the end of his letter, 1 Peter, in verse 7, he says, the end of all things is at hand, right? He's got his card on, right, with straps. The end is near. You, you know these guys, they're out there on the street, the end is near, and they've, they've got a stack full of literature, and they're telling you, this is the Antichrist, and here's what's going to happen to the economy, and, you know, so dig a bunker and stockpile food and invest in gold, right? Or maybe you find this on, on the internet. The end of all things is at hand. What does Peter say? Dig a bunker? No, he says, therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, Most importantly, above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. And so let me invite you, if you have not been washed, make a decision for Christ today. Give your sins to him, let him wash you. And if you've been washed maybe five years, ten years, twenty years, make a decision to stay humble, to stay on your knees to wash the feet of others. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for the opportunity to be here this morning. I pray that the words that I've shared, that you would give me the grace to to walk in them and to live them out. It's so easy to let the world erase what's most important because we just, we live in a haze. 
And so, Father, I pray that that would be true of the church. May we, we bind ourselves together in Christian love and strive to serve each other in the ways in which we most need help. May we be humble. May we be bold and courageous and daring to point out when other people need to know what's on their face or on their feet. And may we be willing to receive it as well. You were willing to wash feet, and so it's not beneath us. It's perfectly fitting for us. May that be the foundation and the guiding light of our church, the idea that we're to humbly serve others for your glory and for our joy. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.